ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the seventh season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution produced with our partners at WSB Radio. This season, Judgment Call. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJCBreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at ReporterJCB. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. Isn't that something that... 62205 you could do what was that just ah, nah, guys naked I want to touch him I'm not I'm not gonna do that I'm just gonna pull my gun out and if he doesn't stop I'm gonna shoot him just think about Pedro Castillo's testimony which was really key remember when the state asked him the state asked him these questions from what you observed did the officer have to shoot Anthony to stop him? Pedro Castillo said yes. He was killed for nothing. Don't even give that to them. Well, he jogged at the officer, so he had to put a bullet in it. That's offense. Do not give them that. He did nothing. He did nothing and he's dead. If the issue of race had been lurking beneath the surface of the Chip Olson murder trial, it came out into the open the morning after closing arguments. That's when defense attorney Don Samuel accused prosecutor Lance Cross of engaging in race baiting. Samuel asked Judge Letitia Deer Jackson to address it when she gave instructions to the jury on the morning of October 4th. Here's what Cross said. You need to go and talk back and talk about if, whether or not this would have happened in any other community. You put this in an affluent suburb. Does it happen? And I know this is the South, and we're supposed to be polite, and there's things sometimes we just don't talk about in mixed company, right? Back in that room, y'all need to talk about all this. Because if your answer is now, it wouldn't have happened. Not somewhere else. Maybe in Heisen, she didn't believe it. You know, maybe not up in an affluent suburb. Samuel said Cross was out of line. It's race bait is what it was. It really was. It was, you know, affluent suburb is another way of saying, had he been white, it never would have happened. That's really what that message was, and I think it was inappropriate. Cross denied the accusation. What I was talking about was strictly socioeconomic. I don't equate affluent suburbs only with white uh, And I'm not sure what, what that means over there, but that's number one. And number two, I was very careful what I said. And what I said was, if you don't believe this would happen in another, in, a, in an affluent suburb, that means it's not reasonable because justice has to be equal everywhere, no matter where you live. So there you go. Race was not involved in this killing in any way. Interestingly, 
Neither side offered an opinion as to whether Olson would have shot a white man in the same circumstances. Welcome back to Breakdown. This is our final episode of Season 7, Judgment Call. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Christian Boone. I cover public safety and law enforcement for the AJC. So after Dear Jackson gave her lengthy instructions, the jurors got the case. They deliberated for five hours before leaving, giving them a full weekend to digest what they'd discussed. Though they were forbidden from reading or watching anything concerning the Olson case, jurors were not totally cut off from the outside world. Two days before closings in the Olson trial, a Dallas jury convicted police officer Amber Geiger of murder. The case had captured the nation's attention. A white cop walks into an apartment and shoots the black man living there. Then, she claims, she thought she was entering her own apartment and was shooting an intruder. Activists praised the conviction, but her sentence, 10 years, was roundly criticized as too lenient. Was the Geiger case on the Olson jurors' minds? Absolutely. But for us, the waiting game began in earnest. Everyone's attention was on the courtroom door leading into the jury room. Sometimes we could hear shouting inside. What we were all waiting for was a knock. It could mean something big, like a verdict, or something mundane, like, can we break early for lunch? By the end of that Monday, around 4.30, the knock came. The jury sent out a note with some revealing information. I have what's been marked as Courts Exhibit 16, and it reads, we have found unanimity on some of the charges and not others. We see no possibility of reconciling the others. Please advise. We didn't know which counts had hung the jury, but we all suspected it was the two felony murder charges. This much was clear, however. We were in for a long wait. You can imagine how excruciating this must have been for Chip Olson and his wife Kathy, and for Anthony Hill's family, too. Both sides would gather inside the courtroom whenever that knock on the door came, the cruelest of teases. But the court's business went on. One day I was sitting in court when the judge took a plea. A guy wearing an orange jail jumpsuit walked out of the holding cell. He'd gotten into a fight over a bet on a 2K video game. When the other guy didn't pay up, the defendant got his gun and opened fire. Two shots hit the other guy, one in the butt, the other in the back. Dear Jackson signed off on the plea deal. Fifteen years in prison. Oh, that bet? It was for just one dollar, almost seven cents, for each year the guy will serve. Day two gave way to day three. Nothing. On Wednesday, court was in recess due to Yom Kippur. Maybe the jurors would come back on Thursday prepared to hammer out a verdict or declare they were hung. Perhaps the judge would give a dynamite charge used to break a deadlock. None of that happened. Day four ended without any movement. But there was this. That day was a Thursday, and a juror asked the judge an interesting question. Is Monday, Columbus Day, a holiday? Not in DeKalb County. But that's not what elicited a collective groan from the courtroom. It was the thought of deliberations continuing into the next week. And that's just what happened. Friday came and went. The only questions from the jurors concerned their lunch break. That weekend, they might have heard about another police shooting. In Fort Worth, Texas, a white police officer shot a black woman through a window in her own home. That cop was charged with murder. We figured Monday would be another long day. I went to lunch with a friend visiting from out of town. A couple of bites into my Cuban sandwich, I got a text from Bill. Come now, ASAP. As I hurried back, Bill sent another text. 
verdict. So nine deputies were stationed in the courtroom, prepared to restore order if emotions ran too high. It had taken 27 hours of deliberations to get here. Everyone may be seated. I think I saw juror number two with a, some paper in your hand. All right, you are the four person. All right, if you will please stand. Have you reached a verdict? We have. Was it unanimous? Yes. Juror two passes the verdict form to the judge. Dear Jackson inspects it and then sends it back. On count one, felony murder, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. On count two, felony murder, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. Olson started weeping, relieved he would not be spending the rest of his life in prison. But then... On count three, aggravated assault, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty of aggravated assault. On count four, violation of oath by public officer, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty of violation of oath by public officer. On count five, making a false statement, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty of making a false statement. On count six, Violation of oath by public officer. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of violation of oath by public officer. That was Kathy Olson. After she broke down, a deputy let her out of the courtroom. You could still hear her wailing out in the hallway. Chip Olson now faced up to 35 years in prison, and Dear Jackson had complete discretion over how long his sentence would be. So maybe it's not surprising she wanted to wait almost two weeks until November 1st to impose the sentence. In the meantime... Olson would remain free on bond, she said. But lead prosecutor Pete Johnson wanted none of that. We believe that Mr. Olson should be treated just like every other defendant who walks through these doors. And I don't recall a time when we have allowed someone who is convicted of a crime that resulted in someone's death to walk out the doors um, to await their sentencing. Then Johnson turned up the pressure on the judge even more. This defendant must be held accountable and his accountability begins today, the day this jury found him guilty. And so respectfully, Your Honor, we would request that you deny any bond and that you put handcuffs on this convicted felon and take him into custody because that's where he belongs. You want me to put the handcuffs on him? I want you to order the deputies to do it, Judge. That was a metaphor. Okay. This was high drama. Then Don Samuel accused Johnson of milking it beyond reason. DA to make a speech here like he's giving a closing argument to a jury is offensive and that the court should stand by its uh, initial uh, decision that he should be allowed to remain free <coughs> under the standards of the Georgia Code and not by the um, rhetoric of the assistant DA who's trying to please the, the, the public here. Dear Jackson stands by her ruling but adds a curfew and requires Olson to wear an ankle monitor and she tells him not to read anything into her decision as to what might happen November 1st. And what I will say, Mr. Olson, is um, that doesn't mean that you will um, not go into custody. Outside the courtroom, DA Sherry Boston tried to put the best face on the jury's decision, which had so disappointed her team. Um, we are grateful that they found accountability uh, for the death of Anthony Hill in this case. Uh, and we look forward to sentencing um, so that we can have justice. 
certainly we we charged felony murder because we believed in felony murder and my team worked very hard uh, to prove to this jury that murder and felony murder were uh, the right outcomes. But I think all of you know that these cases are very difficult, um, not just here in Georgia, but across the United States. Um, it is very difficult to pros prosecute a police officer for murder under these circumstances. She's right about that. Olson is only the third police officer in Georgia this decade to be convicted of using excessive force in the line of duty. Only one was convicted of murder. Don Samuel told me he was incredibly relieved the jury acquitted Olson of the murder charges. The jury got it exactly right on murder, he said, but were obviously disappointed they convicted him on the other counts. Everyone was at least somewhat disappointed with the verdict. Kathy Olson certainly. Anthony Hill's family. Even some of the jurors. During the DA's press conference, I spotted Juror 31 standing unnoticed in the background. He was the only black male on the seven-woman, five-man panel. I was stunned no one else had identified him. I walked over, and he said he'd grant an interview, but only after he spoke with Hill's family inside the courthouse. Later, Juror 31 re-emerged and held an impromptu press conference. When we call a cop, we're expecting a cop to de-escalate a situation, not turn to the most deadliest arsenal you have on your belt. And that's, what, that's where he went wrong. And that's where I had to come in to make sure that the others see that that's where he did wrong. The AJC allows jurors to remain anonymous if they wish. Juror 31 made that request, so we're not using his name. What we can tell you is he's a forklift operator with a new baby at home. And for him, Officer Lynn Anderson's testimony was the turning point. Once you lie, it's hard to believe anything else. And that's what I was going off, the lies. The lies and the lies and the lies. It helped me to make my decision a lot more quicker. The jury's deliberations were often contentious and split along racial lines, said Juror 31. The black jurors, five in all, wanted to convict Olson of murder. A seemingly hopeless deadlock prevailed. It was interesting the way Juror 31 described it, calling those in his camp my team and those who wanted an acquittal the other team. There's only so much that I could do. I, I, was, I was disturbed. I, at some point in time, I, it's just hearing him say self-defense and hearing people in my team saying self-defense was one of the hardest things that any... It was the hardest thing that any man of color could endure. He said he had a hard time understanding how anyone would think Olson should be acquitted. There was people that felt like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, there was people in there that felt like this, this doesn't make any sense. Why are we even in here? And those are the ones that I had to battle against. Those are the ones that make it more difficult. My little team that I had, we had to put a, a, a sketch, things together to try to convince the others that this was not self-defense. Uh, a naked man nude is, doesn't pose a threat to a trained professional cop. When told that reporters could hear arguing from inside the jury room, Juror 31 said that was probably him. That's because he strongly believed Olson should be convicted of murder. It was very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. Very, very Because we're dealing with people on one side that say defense, and we're dealing with another set of people that saying it wasn't self-defense. You know what I'm saying? So it was pretty much fighting a brick wall. I got in a little bit of emotion when I was there because I was trying to figure out what, what is there else to convince, you know, so. But 
Other people need more convincing. The jury returned Monday, October 21st, still at odds. Juror 31 said he was willing to hold out for weeks to get a murder conviction. There was no way he was going to let Olson off without some serious prison time. But, faced with an impasse, the jurors began to see how a compromise might be possible. If the holdouts on aggravated assault changed their votes to guilty, the others would acquit on murder. Juror 31 said they still had to talk one of the black jurors into going along. We had to talk to her and try to get her to understand that we're the best that, that DeKalb County probably going to find to put on this jury team. And if we don't come up with some kind of verdict, we're not going to be on the next one. And because we're not going to be on the next one, we don't know what may happen. You don't want to sit at home knowing that you could have done something. This is Breakdown. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Through a colleague, I learned another juror may be interested in speaking out. And this wasn't just any juror. This was the forewoman. Juror 2 agreed to meet me at a local coffee shop. You may remember her from jury selection. She's the retired Emory University School of Medicine professor who advocates for several progressive causes. As of Juror 31, we respected her desire to remain anonymous. She had seen Juror 31's comments on the news and wanted to expand on what went on behind those closed doors. She said the jury wasn't always divided along racial lines. The vote of the of the jury right after closing arguments was nine to three. Does that sound like a racial decision to you? That was nine to three for guilty. That means at least some of the white jurors had to be for murder. And, Juror 2 said, she was one of them. Coming into the trial, Juror 2 said she believed there was a racial bias in the criminal justice system. But in that jury room, she learned how little she really knew. One of the things I got out of this was a really profound lesson in how truly different my experience with the police is from theirs. And I knew it, you know, I know the statistics. It's one thing to know the numbers. And it's another thing, and I I live in a city that I believe is the most successfully integrated city I've ever been. You know, I'm very proud of that, especially this county. And, and I'm proud of that, I'm, I, and yet, <laughs> these people have experiences that are so unknown to me that I realize and how differently they view things. One of the things that I did um, was engage us in a conversation about that. Both Juror 31 and the forewoman said the jury quickly found Olson guilty of counts five and six making the false statement to Officer Lynn Anderson and violating his oath of office because of it. And Juror 2 said Olson's lie to Anderson resonated throughout the jury room. And that's part of the problem, is that there are these just these little lies. As deliberations continued, negotiations focused on the question of self-defense. And there were entrenched positions on both sides. Unanimity at this point seemed impossible. One juror, a white male, had initially agreed with everyone else that Olson was guilty of counts four, five, and six. That's the false statement charge and the two oath of office violations. But he was so adamant that Olson was not guilty of murder, he turned the deliberations on their head. And so he decided 
in his wisdom that if we weren't going to go all not guilty on one and two, well, then he was going to hang us on all of them, and he took back his votes on four, five, and six. He was threatening to hang the jury on every count if they didn't acquit Olson of murder. That's exactly what he was doing. And remember, when we're talking about juries, a single person can hold enormous power over the ultimate outcome. Any one juror can do that. Any single person in that group could have said, nope, it's going to go my way. I'm going to make sure we hang on every, and, and we'll let another jury, a better jury decide that, which was kind of the implication. Any, but who would do it? That's the question. Both Juror 31 and the forewoman said they couldn't see an end to their deliberations. There was just too much division. I expected that we would hang on murder because there were so many people dedicated to no and so many people dedicated to yes that I didn't see any real way. Jurors in Georgia are not told what possible punishment a conviction will bring. But at least one Olson juror knew that a felony murder conviction meant an automatic life sentence for the ex-cop. Remember, they had been discussing Amber Geiger's 10-year sentence for murder. For some jurors, even those who initially thought Olson should be found guilty of murder, life in prison was too much. To me, honestly, a life sentence for that man seemed like vengeance. It didn't seem like justice. On that final Monday, when there seemed no hope for unanimity, something unexpected happened. You heard how Juror 31 described it. Here's the forewoman's account, which is nearly identical. I saw at the other end of the table people nodding and saying, well, we could go along with that. And so I went over to see what the conversation was. And the conversation was, you know, I could live with not guilty if we were guilty on three, four, five, and six. And I thought, well, I'll I'll bring that up. A compromise verdict had finally been reached. What we did was we voted in a way that would assure punishment. And the only other option was to be hung on six. Now, all six. The forewoman said she expected to be asked to read the verdict because that's what she's seen on TV. When I asked her whether she was affected by Kathy Olson's emotional outburst, she said she was so focused on reading the verdict, she didn't even notice it. Juror 2 said one reason she talked to me was that three black female jurors were weeping when the verdict was read. And I kind of want people to know why they were crying. Because they did not want to vote not guilty. To so badly that it was just breaking their hearts to have to vote not guilty for murder. The forewoman said the trial stuck with her for days and days after it was over, even when she went on a North Georgia meditation retreat the following weekend. She went back and read news accounts of the case. She listened to this podcast, and she came away with some interesting observations, such as this take on Chip Olson. Okay, so now what I've learned is I knew that he became a cop late in life, but what I didn't realize was he's really was a desk guy. And he'd spent vast majority of his career as a desk guy, which is perfect for him, I'm sure, and he was happy there. And to have County and its wisdom put him out on the street where he did not belong. As we talked, I, uh, I, got, I got more and more of a sense of Olson as somebody that was in over his head. But he still killed somebody. And you're just, you, you, you have to keep coming back to 
he he still killed somebody. And the headline is he killed somebody who was unarmed and naked. And you just, you can't overcome that. Juror 31 was in total agreement with that. Cops that ready, that, that's ready to grab the, the, that's ready to go from zero to 10 very quickly. We don't need cops like that out on the street. We need cops that's going to think from zero to one, two, three, four, five, not from zero to 10. He went from zero to 10. And he had plenty, plenty of time to de-escalate the situation. And that's the problem that we have in America. The forewoman also told me that the jury didn't buy the defense's argument that Olson had just six or seven seconds to react. They figured Anthony Hill was about 200 feet away when he started running toward Olson. And if that was the case, they calculated Olson had 17 seconds to react. I said, okay, everybody, I'm going to show you what 17 seconds is. And we sat through 17 seconds and everybody went, that's a lot of time to make up your mind about what you're going to use. That's a lot of time. The forewoman told me she was surprised by some of the news reports following the verdict. I, though I have to say I was very de- disappointed to see headlines saying he got off. Because I've seen that a few places, and I've heard commentary on social media, the cop got off, and he, he didn't get off. As we talked, I told Juror 2 that, going into the trial, I believed it would be pretty much impossible to get 12 people from the community to agree on the murder charges. There was just too much for either side to hold on to without giving in. I told her I was truly surprised when she disclosed to the judge that the jury did reach unanimity on counts one and two, to which she replied. And just so you know, we didn't. So she's saying they really weren't unanimous. Yeah, even though they said they were. This was fascinating, hearing these two jurors replay what went on inside that jury room. You often don't hear anything from jurors after trials. And I'm so glad they came forward. Otherwise, their verdict wouldn't seem to make much sense especially the not guilty of felony murder based on aggravated assault, and then guilty of aggravated assault. Now, it makes perfect sense. Almost immediately, the focus shifted from the verdict to sentencing. Though Anthony Hill's death never got the national attention of some other officer-involved shootings, activists closely watched the trial. To them, it was clear that Chip Olson was a murderer, and they felt he should be punished as one. The onus was on Judge Deer Jackson, elected for the first time to the Superior Court bench just a year earlier. Only she could exact the justice they demanded. She's an African-American judge uh, in a, I think a majority African-American county where she's elected. Um, and the black community, from what I understand, is, is looking to her for some serious justice in this case. That's the cab lawyer, Bob Rubin, who followed the trial. From what I'm reading, a lot of African-Americans are looking for high sentence for Mr. Olson. Um, And yet, like every judge, she has to be able to put all those political considerations aside and base her sentence in a consistent and fair way. The night of the verdict, attorney Gerald Griggs led a rally outside the courthouse. He had attended some of the trial and even got into a little trouble with the judge when he snapped a photo inside the courtroom and posted it on social media. Dear Jackson found him in contempt and fined him $200. At the rally, Griggs, a leader of the local NAACP, said the judge needed to sentence Olson to the max, 35 years in prison. No peace! No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace!
It was the beginning of a pressure campaign that would last until sentencing day. There would be rallies and even a so-called die-in held on a rainy October night. Speaking at a press conference, State Representative Renita Shannon put the case into a national context. Past injustices need to be considered when figuring Olson's punishment, she said. When police officers see black and brown bodies, they make different choices. They make different choices in our community, and they make different choices in these situations. What Griggs said next was fairly stunning, particularly when you consider he makes his living as a defense attorney. It's not every day that you see elected officials and activists and family members standing together, sending a message to an elected official. Mm -hmm. She was elected to do the will of DeKalb County. So she has an opportunity to send a message to give him 30 years plus five so he can sit and reflect for the rest of his life the decision he made instead of staying in his car, instead of using his aspartame, instead of using his OC spray, instead of using his radio, within seven seconds of seeing an individual who believed the police were his friends, he fired two kill shots. The proper punishment for that, and I've heard it many times, is a life sentence, which in this case would be 35 years. Lots to unpack here. Judges aren't elected to be rubber stamps for public opinion. And it goes about saying the public is often wrong about these things. I'm not saying that's the case here. But history books are filled with miscarriages of justice that had wide public support. And when did it become a judge's job to send a message? A judge's job is to be an impartial arbiter of the law. You had to feel for Judge Dear Jackson. Most judges never deal with this kind of public pressure, especially during their first year on the bench. Griggs went so far to say the judge would be targeted for defeat if she produced an unsatisfactory sentence, all for a case that fell into her lap after three judges recused themselves. But this sentencing hearing would be unlike most. Usually you have a pretty good idea of what's coming, but in this case, with so much pressure on the judge and so much leeway on the sentence she could give, the drama was building. Griggs had encouraged protesters to fill the courtroom, and they did, squeezing out family members and the media. Out in the hallway, I spoke with Carolyn Jumo, Anthony's mother, who would be giving a victim impact statement. She was worried the judge would be too lenient. I just hope she doesn't get up and hug Olson, a close friend of Carolyn's interjected. She's referring to the Geiger case, where the Dallas judge embraced the former cop after sentencing her. We eventually got into the courtroom after Dear Jackson arranged to have a live stream set up for those who couldn't get inside. She also made an important ruling. She decided that the false statement conviction merged with the violation of oath of office conviction for making that false statement. In other words, Olson now faced a maximum of 30 years in prison instead of 35. The state began making his case for prison time by calling a police internal affairs official. He told the judge about four civilian complaints against Olson. We told you about those in one of the earlier episodes of Breakdown. Jurors never heard about these complaints at trial, but prosecutors are using them now to suggest Olson had a short fuse. The state also called Anthony Hill's family. Not surprisingly, this was emotional testimony. You've heard in earlier episodes from Anthony's mother, Carolyn, and his sister, Tamara. Here we'll play some of what his father had to say. He now lives in Chicago, and he broke down before he could even say a word on the stand. Hello, everyone. Hello, y'all. Excuse me. Um, my name is Anthony Hill. I'm 57 years old, like 
Rob Wilson. Anthony is my youngest of two sons. I remember vividly that night when I, was, when I received that phone call from my sister. He arrived at his sister's house about five miles outside of Chicago. All his relatives were there, except his mom, who suffered from Alzheimer's. He said he was prepared to hear that his mother had passed. That's not what my sister said. You know, she told me that Tony, little Tony's dead. He'll describe what the last four and a half years have been like. And then he fixed his attention on Olson. Your, your child's not here. You, 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 you have to be drugged through a trial where you just once, I'm looking at the man. I'm being a man, I'm looking at a man. And just once I wanted that man to just make eye contact with me. Just, just, he don't have to say anything, but just your eyes can tell whether or not, listen, I'm sorry, nothing. I stood out in that passageway many a day, just hoping, just once, that I can get just a little bit of eye contact, nothing. You don't have to say anything to me. Not one time will you look my way. Not just a, just a glance, anything, anything. Olson appeared to finally make eye contact with Hill's father, but clearly it was too little, too late. The judge also heard from Hill's mother, Carolyn. Both parents had been in the courtroom every day. Your Honor, the jury may have found Mr. Robert Olson not guilty of murder, but he still killed my son. He has never taken responsibility for taking my son's life. He's never just said, I'm sorry. For killing Tony. Mr. Olson could have taken a plead for 15 years before the trial. I was okay with that sentencing at the time. Now that my family and I had endured all the photos and hear all the testimonies of the trial, I would ask you to sentence him to the maximum sentence for the charges for which the jury found him guilty. Thank you. Now it was up to the defense to convince the judge that Olson deserved mercy. Notably absent throughout the trial had been any of Olson's fellow DeKalb County cops, and none showed up for the sentencing to speak up on his behalf. Defense attorney Amanda Clark Palmer told me some wanted to be there, but were ordered not to. The most powerful testimony for Olson came from his wife, Kathy. She painted a picture of a man the jury never saw. He was devoted to their young son, now in the fourth grade. She said she would often find her husband drinking his morning coffee outside, watching the dogs play. That time helped him find peace when he was troubled, she said. She also revealed one reason she would never forget the date her husband shot and killed Anthony Hill. 
March 9th is her birthday. We all love him more than words can express. In closing, I would like to take a moment to recognize the pain this event has caused Mr. Hill's family. I hope I never have to know the pain of losing a child. I cannot imagine how hard this has been for his parents and family. Both Chip and I are sympathetic to what the Hill family has endured these last few years. Thank you again for your time today. The defense is asking for five years in prison. They're arguing that's in line with what other cops received in fatal police shootings where there wasn't a murder conviction. Interestingly, they relied on data from Philip Stinson from Bowling Green University after hearing him interviewed on this podcast. Chip Olson didn't wake up that morning and decide, I'm going to go kill somebody. Chip Olson um, is not the kind of person who engaged in that kind of behavior. We can call it terrible judgment that he exercised that day with unbelievably catastrophic consequences. But one thing we could never say is it was not motivated by anger. It was not motivated by any evil animus. It was not malicious. That's Don Samuel. He urged the judge to resist the political pressure to make an example out of Olson. I read that one person said, well, it's an eye for an eye. That's what this is all about. It's an eye for an eye. He took a life. He has to spend the rest of his life in prison. And I would suggest that if we're going to rely on biblical wisdom, there are a lot of other portions of the Bible that talk about mercy, that talk about forgiveness, that talk about compassion. And then an eye for an eye just leads everybody to be blind. In this case, my last reference to the protesters, if I may, it's odd in this case that the organization that usually is talking about criminal justice reform and the need to have fair punishment and to get rid of these mandatory minimums and outrageous sentences for people, that that is the organization here that is screaming for blood and vengeance. And I'm, I'm sorry that that's happened. I think it's inappropriate. As a criminal defense attorney, Samuel has almost always found himself on the same side as the NAACP. Here, it's pretty clear that's who he's criticizing. This is Breakdown. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Pete Johnson is now up for the state. And if you follow this podcast, you know he's going to go for the jugular. The state, he says, wants 25 years in prison, followed by five years on probation. That's not the maximum, but it's pretty close. Um, we've also heard from the family in this case, from Mrs. Jumo and um, Mr. Hill and um, Tamara Jumo, Anthony's sister. And I would like just at this moment to ask everybody in this courtroom who's here for Mr. Hill, if you would please stand up. Thank you. You can 
those that are watching this. That seems to be Johnson's not-so-subtle way of reminding the judge of the wide support for a tough sentence. Just about everyone in the gallery who wasn't a supporter of Olson or a member of the media rose in unison. Johnson then tells the judge that Olson's actions that day were unreasonable and unjustified, and then Olson tried to cover up his crime. Anthony Hill's body wasn't even cold, and he was already lying about it. It's a disgrace to Anthony Hill's name. Whether you like it or not, you're the conscience of this community. And we hope that the sentence that is given to this defendant reflects a conscience that believes this is wrong, this must be dealt with appropriately, and that we will not stand for this, that we need to deter other officers from doing this, other people from doing this, and that this type of thing should never, ever happen again, and no one should have to go through what the Hills had to go through and Jumos in dealing with the loss of their son. Thank you. After nearly four hours, it's finally time for the judge to rule. She begins her remarks by returning to March 9, 2015. That is a day that Mr. Hill and Mr. Olson will forever be tied to whether they wanted to or not. Um, my role as a judge is to be fair and impartial, to listen to the evidence, to make sure that the law is applied to the evidence and to make sure that I listen and take everything into account and see both sides. And what I will say to you, Mr. Hill, Ms. Juno, and Ms. Tamra Juno, I see you. I watched you throughout this trial and the fortitude that you showed and the strength that you have shown. And Ms. Juno, even the compassion that you have shown for the Olson family is something that is to be desired by everyone. Um, no one can understand how you specifically feel as a parent and as a sister. Um, Mr. Olson, I watched you through the whole trial. And what I can say is many might have thought that you were stoic and void of emotion. I think I will take something that your sister said, that you're like an egg with a hard shell and a soft side. Because from the time that opening statement started, I saw the tears that you had. I saw how you replayed March 9, 2015 in your head. I saw the quick eye darts that you gave to the screen when images came up. What I will say is, as a family member of someone that is in law enforcement, I understand the role and the duties that are placed upon people that are in law enforcement. The judgment calls that they have to make and the incidents that they have to encounter. And there is nothing that a civilian can ever do to understand that. But also as a granddaughter of war veterans, and a family member of war veterans, I understand what it's like when people sacrifice and love their country and they go to war and they see things that we can never imagine. And they come back sometimes different than they left. And I understand that firsthand. What I will say is that in everything 
that I did in listening to all of this trial and the evidence that has come on and in reading all 73 pages and all 25 character witness letters. Um, what I will say is that people might not recognize it, but Anthony Hill and Robert Olson had a lot of similarities. They both loved their community. They had different paths. They both were loved by their families. Almost all the time when people come before me, they're here for a lapse of judgment. You are here before me because you made a judgment call in your capacity as an officer. And what I will say is that based on the charges that you were convicted of, I am going to sentence you to 20 years to serve the first 12 in custody. Deputies escorted Olson out of the courtroom. For the record, he was not handcuffed by anyone. Before he disappeared into a holding cell, he nodded at one of the deputies, stoic to the end. As for Kathy Olson, she collapsed on the floor just as the door closed behind her husband. It's safe to say Judge Dear Jackson didn't succumb to all the pressure. She fell well short of what the prosecution wanted, but her sentence was more than twice as long as what the defense sought. So, like the verdict, the sentence satisfied almost no one. Right. And a few days later, our colleague, columnist Bill Torpy, caught up with the judge. Here's what she told him. Quote, I'm not the conscience of the community. First, you must decide what community are you talking about? Is it the police community? The African-American community? The veterans community? Unquote. She said throughout the closely watched trials, she remained focused on being consistent and following the law. DA Sherry Boston was soon back in front of the media reacting to the sentence. While we were hoping for a sentence closer to our recommendation, we are grateful that Mr. Olson will spend time behind bars and be held accountable for all of his actions. We believe a measure of justice for Anthony Hill has been served and his family's voice has been heard. Boston also talked about several larger themes we've explored during this podcast. While we know that the public lens is focused on several narratives, white versus black, police versus civilian, armed versus unarmed, our hope is that there are larger takeaways. The need for comprehensive and ongoing training related to evaluating and handling calls involving mental health issues. Employing non-lethal approaches to de-escalating situations when warranted, and strengthening our law enforcement and community relations. Carolyn Jumo followed Boston to the podium. Fight for justice for Anthony Hill. Even though I didn't get what I wanted, I wanted the maxim. Some time is better than no time. But if I'm truly happy about it, I'm not. But I have to accept what was given. One person we never heard from during the trial or the sentencing was Chip Olson. In fact, Olson did plan to stand up and give what's called an elocution before sentencing. But Samuel told us that prosecutors were demanding that they be allowed to cross-examine Olson if he did that. And that's why his lawyers advised him not to. I've seen many, many elocutions, and I've never seen defendants undergo cross-examination when they did. Would he have apologized to the Hill family? We'll never know. A lot of legal observers will argue over what led to the ultimate decision in this case. Was testimony for maintenance man Pedro Castillo, the state's own witness, 
the reason Olson was not convicted of murder? The one thing everyone seems to agree on is that race played an enormous role. And how you view the outcome may depend on the color of your skin. That was the takeaway from someone who knows the case as well as anyone, the jury for woman. I want you to know that every white man I have spoken with, and there have been quite a few, have exactly the same response, it wasn't murder. And I want you to know that every black person I have spoken to, and there have been quite a few since this began, said it was. We also asked defense attorney Bob Rubin about that. I hate that. I hate that we all look at the same facts and how we see those facts often depends on our our skin color um, and I guess how we were raised and our perspectives on things. But I hate that it, it, if it did break along racial lines that it did. But um, for a lot of people, it does. I mean, I, I would hate to see an event happen and simply because one party's black and one party's white, people come to conclusion as to what the result should be. That's not justice. That's not how our system's supposed to work. It's supposed to be colorblind. And yet, when things break along racial lines in the jury room, it really makes you question whether we can ever really uh, try cases in a, in a colorblind way. Former DA Robert James, who indicted Olson, found the verdict disheartening. African-American people in every community that look at this and it undermines their trust and confidence in the criminal justice system because they feel like if, if you know, that, that, that if you're black, if you're African-American, that your life doesn't matter. But Brad Schrade, who's followed police shootings for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, sees it differently. Incremental change is still change, he said. You have a cop who shot and killed somebody who's going to spend 12 years in prison or thereabouts. In Georgia, that doesn't happen. I would say it may not be the verdict that everybody wanted in terms of advocates and others, but based on history, the fact that there was a conviction in a fatal police shooting with some substantial prison time is a pretty significant event in Georgia and really around the country. I mean, the data just shows that rarely are police officers held accountable when they shoot and kill somebody. About a week after the sentencing, Chip Olson reported to prison. The Department of Corrections soon posted his photo on its website. There's Olson in his prison whites. He already looks as if he's aged a bit. He's expected to wind up serving his time at a prison in Southeast Georgia where many ex-law enforcement officers and other high-profile defendants serve out their time. That's where former Atlanta attorney Tex McIver is. Olson could be eligible for parole after serving about five to seven years behind bars. By then, his 10-year-old son will be a teenager, and Olson will be nearing retirement age. We heard a lot of talk about sending a message with the verdict or sending a message with the sentence. But here's one of the most profound messages of this trial. We've made progress on race in the past 60 years. There was a time when black people wouldn't have been allowed on that jury. A time when Olson wouldn't even have been charged in the killing of Anthony Hill. So progress, yes. But the shouting in the jury room, the weeping in the jury box, the anguish in the community suggest that stark racial divisions lie just beneath the surface of everyday life. Perhaps there will come a time when that's not true, but that time is not now. On the other hand, perhaps no one was satisfied with the result, but this black and white jury found a way to compromise. 
a way to come together even when some of their most important beliefs were at stake. Maybe that, in itself, is progress. But the fact remains, Anthony Hill will never arrange another beat or sing another song. Every single time that I see your face, I can't get enough. Girl, I can't erase. You're blessed with so much gifts. Make me wanna pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, why I wrote this song. Shout out to my girl. You can do no wrong. The center of my world. This wraps up Judgment Call. Christian, I've enjoyed working on this season with you. Bill, it's been an honor to be a part of it. This is a case I covered from the very beginning, and I'm glad it received the breakdown treatments. We now have seven seasons and 62 episodes of Breakdown behind us. It's been quite a ride. Thank you for giving so generously of your time and attention. It's an honor to tell these stories, and finding an audience for them is an honor greater still. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankins. I'm Christian Boone. Thank you for joining us on Breakdown. You should know that I'll never replace you with no one. You've been listening to Breakdown, reported and narrated by Bill Rankin and Christian Boone. Produced by Shannon McCaffrey. Edited by Richard Hallex. Sound designed by Shane Backler at WSB Radio. Original music composed and recorded by Bo Emerson and Anthony Hill. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Monica Richardson, Sean McIntosh, Brad Schrade, Pete Corson, Pete Spriggs, Chris Camp, Veronica Waters, and all the great people at the AJC. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous six seasons of Breakdown. And of course, thanks so very much for listening. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.